This is Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan, primatologist, comedian, and co founder of Boaz Network. In studio, we have our fabulous, hilarious comedian, Patrick Melton. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and today we're going to talk about what made our hominin ancestors human. At what point did we become human? And we have a paleoanthropologist, Dr. Mark Kissel from Appalachian State University, here to talk to us about this very subject. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing wonderful, and I'm super happy to be here. This is going to be really fun. I'm excited. I, I feel like the comedian hired at a tech convention to make something cool. <laughs> like, hey, guys, we're going to talk about a lot of nerd stuff today. Here's a comedian. He's going to juggle in between He's going to juggle, and he's going to make, he's gonna make Enjoy. it. Enjoy. Yeah, exactly. I can juggle also if you want to have I'm supposed to make science See, sexy and yeah. funny? No. No, no. no definitely not sexy <laughs> and barely funny. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Star talk. Thank you. Well, today we're going to talk uh, about, again, what made hominins human. And because a lot of people at home might not be familiar with the term hominins or paleoanthropology, what is the study of paleoanthropology and what is a hominin anyway? Hominin. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> mm. So I like the questions that I can answer very easily. So a hominin essentially is a primate that is more closely related to us than to any other living primate. Something that's on our evolutionary tree. So we know about maybe 10 to 7 million years ago, the last common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans split. We don't know why or how this happened or exactly when. The date is really iffy. But something happened, and then a group led to the, what we now know as the chimps and the bonobos. Another group led to what's eventually us. And there's a whole lot of things that were on that hominin lineage. Some of them went extinct. Some of them interbred with our ancestors. Others... We don't know what happened to. So the question of paleoanthropology is how to put together this really cool puzzle of we know a lot about the fossil record, but because fossils don't breed, we debate about how exactly they were connected to each other. That's a great way of putting it together because it's a tough it's a tough study to, to really explain, I think, to the layperson. It's, it's, just, it's a big puzzle, and we're putting together pieces you know, of, of wit ancestor went here and at what time were you know did this person mate with that person and so on and so forth and there are some dead ends like you mentioned hominids are more were more ape-like yeah hominids well it's a basically the fact that we used to call the things hominids mm -hmm. and then we found that because of inside baseball reasons of genetics that we're closer to chimps than we are to anything else so they changed the ending to emphasize that, but hominids, or what we used to call, we now call hominins, are the same like a thing. PC thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh boy. Yeah. If if anybody calls it a hominid, it's just like whoa. <laughs> yeah. So twenty years. Stay ago. in your lane, man. Really. Just back off. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm learning a lot. If I ever write any hominin or hominid jokes, I'm going to need to you know, know those things. <laughs> thank you, and remember, Neanderthal, not Neanderthal. It's, it's I don't know. Important. It's one of those things. I, and, and believe me, I believe you when you say it's one or the other because I'm too lazy to Google <laughs> that. But it's one of those things like everyone says Thal. There's been so much pop culture that says Thal. Maybe you guys should change it. You know what I mean? Mm. It's almost like the metric system. It's like, what are we doing, stubborn America? What are we holding on to? Right. Like us in, in three other countries. Like, can we well, just maybe switch? we could do it correctly. I mean, because so Mark studied Neanderthals for a long time. Right, so the, the cool kids say Thal. Yeah. Don't yeah. Neander tell me what to say. Hey. The H is for haters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sh <okay>. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's you better call tall, not you better call you fall. Get, now, are you... <laughs> 
Do you ever, do you correct people though? Or do you let it slide? Actually, guys. What about? Well, what oh, I don't correct people because that becomes annoying. What unless you, it's Natalia. And, uh, yeah. and are there respected <laughs> scientists in your circles who say it the other way? And you oh, just they are. Like, it, it's one of those annoying things that people fight about and debate endlessly. I really don't care. Well, you know it what they do like fight about. Care. Yeah, we do care. It yeah, sounds yeah. like you care. You I'm know what they honest. do fight about endlessly is what? What exactly? When, when exactly? And how exactly did did hominins become human? And that's what you've been looking at recently. Right. So, what are the different things that you're looking at? Like symbolic thinking. What exactly is symbolic thinking? So that's a good question, and it's one of those things that we use sort of as a catch-all that has no very good definition. But essentially, it's the concept that humans are very good at using things that stand for things that are not right there right now. We can, you know, look at something and connect it to things that aren't in front of us. So language is a good example, right? The word dog means for that furry little pet, but there's no reason why that word refers to that thing. It's just based on convention. So symbolic thought allows us to do that. Or the fact that, you know, walking down the street now, I see people with tattoos Tattoos are a symbol of something. They stand for something. Now, we don't always know what that means for the person doing it or, you know, making, inking their, hand, their, their arm, but it clearly means something for them and maybe for their friends or their, you know, their family. And that is a very human-like thing. As far as we know, other non-human primates don't do that. They don't have symbolic thought, per se. We think not. I mean, you know... To say that chimps don't do something is really dangerous because the next day you'll, pr- right? you'll prove that they don't. They <laughs> Gosh do that. darn it, they're always proving us wrong. <laughs> when they throw poop at you, I'm pretty sure it means something. Well, sure. usually it's a sign of protest. <laughs> I've actually had poop thrown on me two weeks ago. By and a chimp? Yes, by a chimp. Nobody Her name is Gertrude. A <laughs> we had a, 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 a fecal connection. Um, she's fecal family now because you know, family sticks together when shit gets real. And uh, she's my poo sister. And I decided to actually uh, sponsor her at the sanctuary because I felt like we really connected. But that's a sign of protest. So that's not necessarily like I really want you to smell my poop, but it's a way that she can assert her control because she was in captivity. So I don't know if that is necessarily symbolic thought. I don't know how much thought went into that behavior, but that is something, I guess, to to question whether... Well, I mean, I guess the skeptic would say, okay, she knew that by throwing that, you'd get out of the way or you'd leave her alone. That's what she wanted. So there's a causal connection, right? Like smoke is an index of fire. Symbolic thought is there's no connection at all. It just means that because we all agree that stop sign means to stop. She might do that when nobody's around. It might just be a pragmatic choice. She's like, this stuff stinks. I don't want it where I live. Right, yeah. Get this out of here. Why would she put it in her hand then? She would just let it fall to the ground, Patrick. Don't under, don't even try to understand their now. culture. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that you look at is is the idea of of humans gaining wisdom, mm-hmm. and that is a kind of a touchy word in our field because what exactly is wisdom? What is what, what do you consider <laughs> wisdom, and and how does one gain that as I know a species? People who still don't have it. <laughs> no, I feel like the last time we had it was November eighth, two thousand sixteen. We just yeah. slowly <laughs> of getting dumber and dumber. So the answer there is the reason why is because I part of a project called the Evolution of Human Wisdom, which I was hired to be a part of. So I was like, well, that's what you want me to say. I'll study it. <laughs> There's a paycheck in it. I'll believe it. Good yeah. to know. Scientists can be bought. You hear this community at large? Don't trust but anything. Mo- <laughs> so basically, it's a part of like it's anthropologists and psychologists, philosophers, theologians, and the word wisdom means more to them than it does to us. So it's a useful way to sort of get between disciplines. 
Though I will say that whenever I tell people I study wisdom, they're like, well, what the hell do you know about wisdom? Which is kind of insulting. I, I, I find you to be wise, oh, Mark. I, I, Mark and I are good friends on the outside world, not just in this podcast room. And, and he is a wise son of a gun. Also, I will say that the wisdom angle is the fact that we, I think of it as the fact that humans are very, very good at cooperating and getting well together in groups. We do that better than most, any other primate I know of. So I think that's sort of the thing that makes us maybe distinctive, is we're community builders and social network builders. We also do it worse than anybody, though. <laughs> like, there's... <laughs> But even when we, when we do it bad, we do contention. it in, We do it well bad, though. Like, yeah, if we're exactly. going to be bad, we, yeah. we do, like, yeah, like yeah, for instance, yeah. the idea that, you know, uh, we were talking about chimps earlier, like, you know, chimps have war, but we're <laughs> so much better at it than them, you know? Because well, yeah, they, they have they, drones. Yeah. I mean, chimp warfare is chimps going on patrol, right, and maybe attacking someone else. Yeah. But as far as the wisdom goes, what do you consider wisdom, and how do you flesh that out of the fossil record? So that's the tricky part, right? It's really hard to flesh something like that's so incoherent as wisdom out of the fossil record. What I try to do is look for these signals in the archaeological record or even in the fossil record of human community building. I'm building like, you know, not just living in the moment, but creating new things. So making necklaces, decorating their bodies, things that to us signal that that individual wanted to let people know, oh, here's who I am. Personality? Yeah, personality. Swag, really. Because like El Castillo Cave. Right, yeah, with yeah. The, with, there's, so there's a cave, El Castillo Cave in Spain, where they found, uh, a, 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 they, uh, I think the, the fossils sat dormant for a while. They found it years ago, but they finally realized that these, these eagle's talons could have been a necklace. Oh, that's crappy in a cave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, crappy. Oh, cra- sorry. Crappy in a cave. I'm thinking of El Castillo as the handprints. Yeah. Sorry. My bad. But uh, yeah, crap in a, crap in a cave. Uh, so that right there would be, would that be considered something that's... I mean... My colleagues might disagree, but for me, yeah. So this is, they found these eagle talons from a Neanderthal site about, about 100,000 years ago, it dates to. And it's this really weird thing where they were wrapping them and probably using them for necklaces. And for us, we're like, well, of course, that's what humans do, but no one else does that. So that's what I think you is get a distinctive thing. a lot of trouble. Thing. Eagles are in danger. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Neanderthals should know better. Nowadays, the Nowadays, EPA is all over. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sam the Eagle will get, get up in their, their business. But yeah, no. So, and, and even some of the, like, for instance, art um, that has been associated with like Neanderthals, mm-hmm. like El Castillo Cave, which has the handprints, these uh, red ochre handprints, that's even controversial because there's this idea that maybe that's not even but so it's, I mean, the back symbolic st- enough for. It's also really hard to date rock art. So there's this one site where it might be made by Neanderthals. But we simply don't know. And oftentimes, as you guys discussed, I think a couple of weeks ago, Neanderthals are seen as the dumb ones. So we also think they can't do that kind of stuff. So people are very skeptical of that. But we do find other examples of like the jewelry. You're yeah. talking about like two two different levels of it though. So like when you say like jewelry or if 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 an individual person make is creating some kind of art, then that's on a personal basis, mm-hmm. kind of like them showing personality on their own. But then as a society, like like you said, making language or like appreciating art enough to know to preserve it mm-hmm. or like locate it in a, a museum for right. lack of a better word at an early at an early point. So there's two levels of that kind of what you're looking at for mm-hmm. wisdom, like an individual basis and a larger like societal communal working together yeah i think so actually that's a good way to put it i mean the way i look at it is it's more important how you live in a group right so and like you just pointed out the fact that you can wear something means one thing but the fact that i might wear something to influence what you think about me 
right. is another thing. And to me, that's the human aspect coming out. That. Recognizing that if I were, you know, a, a star Trump, of a star Trump of, shirt. Uh, yeah. If I were a Trump shirt down in we, Wall yeah. Street, I, I would, you know, probably have issues. Or if I wore a $50,000 jacket, right? That's another symbol. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, no, no. So uh, definitely there's an idea that it's more of a, a, a social uh, evolution rather mm-hmm. than just, just an individual. It's not just one savant being, you know, having wisdom. It's, 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 it's uh, social wisdom. Does or, it happen at the same time, though, the individual versus the, the social? We don't know. Yeah. I mean, we do find little glimmerings of people doing interesting stuff like using shell beads very very like 300,000 years ago you find like engraved clamshells but you don't see it that often until about 100,000 years ago so it could be that only like, individuals are doing this and like you said anything anybody on an individual basis is doing it's it's to communicate in some nonverbal form to other people about you right. something that you believe or stand for or we want people to know or think you are so you that is social even mm-hmm. when, it, when it is individual yeah so that's a sign of basically gating modernity or, or wisdom or... Yeah, I mean, I think so. Yeah. People can disagree, but yeah, I mean, my mind would be that that shows you're doing something that is trying to signal to other people, here's who I am, here's who I am, and that is sort of a human-like thing. Now, how did you get involved in this particular study, other than somebody asking you, hey, can you study <laughs> wisdom? But I mean, your background specifically is paleoanthropology and looking right. at Neanderthals, but wh- how, did, how did you fall into this, this world of anthropology in the first place? So I'll blame my mom for that. When I was a kid, she'd drag us to museums or listening to PBS because we didn't have cable. And I never knew that anyone did this for a living. I thought this was something people did for fun on the side. In college, I took an archaeology class as an elective, and the woman, uh, Pam Crabtree, who you could tell that she loved her job, and she'd go in every day and excited to talk about this stuff. And it was the first time yes. I knew people get paid to do that kind of stuff. And I just got very lucky, and I you know, worked with a gentleman, John Hawks, in grad school. He taught me a lot. I was a geneticist mostly, and also a fossil guy who's associated with the Homo Naledi project that you just also talked about. And yeah, I mean, I worked with him for a while studying Neanderthals and genetics. And then this project sort of just opened up at the perfect time. You know, I, I knew people who were working on it and they, you know, asked if I wanted to join it. So I got very lucky. And how do you think this, I mean, the, the findings that you have, and we're going to talk more about that in the next segment about the specific findings that you're, you know, genetics, uh, looking at the fossil record, and then, of course, looking at the uh, artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what is the, um, what will be the implications of what you find? Like, what is the goal? Will this help? I just, is this more, is this filling in a puzzle? Is this helping us maybe better understand ourselves? Mm-hmm. So I will say that at the, in the long term, I think that it helps Emphasize, you know, emphasize our shared humanity, right? That the fact that we're all, I mean, even though there's a lot, there's what, eight, seven, eight billion of us on the planet, we're all very similar genetically. And that we can sort of see the origins of when we became human is not that long ago. So even though there's a lot of us, we're kind of endangered in the sense of how variable we are. We're, we're all highly inbred in our genes. So to my mind, it clicks into the notion that even though there's var- variation in human phenotype, we're all very similar in sort of that story of human evolution. So I think by looking at our shared evolutionary history, we can come to a meaning of that humanity is something that we all have sort of deep within us. Yeah. We're far more similar than, than we are different, that's for sure. I mean, politicians make us look different, right? But we yeah. kind of want to keep ourselves... I think that There's the, money in that. The lesson of anthropology is that, you know, we're all very similar 
and that it's um, the variation on the outside is much less than the variation on the inside. And I think that looking at this question of wisdom helps us to, at some level, get to that issue of the causes and consequences of modern variation. Do you hope to take this and make it kind of more of a holistic approach by looking at um, so looking at past evolution of wisdom and and now modern uh, <laughs> idea of wisdom in different cultures? Is that something that would be mm-hmm. possible in the future? I mean, I, kind of taking it four field approach and going from not just bio anthro archaeology <coughs> uh, paleoanthropology, but also throwing in some modern day cultural anthropology right. just to make it wacky. So yeah, that's a good question. Um, at the project that I'm associated with at Notre, where I am at Notre Dame right now is about that. It's trying to get everything into the, into talk to each other. We're trying to do that. We haven't really gotten that far yet. Some of my colleagues are in the theology department, and that's where their move is. Like, what does this mean for being human, right? How do we define humanness that would include everybody? And in that sense, yes. But it's okay. I never thought about the sort of the cultural anthropology aspect yeah. of it, but that's really clever as well. Okay, so we're going to have to wrap up this part of the show. We're going to be back with some cosmic queries for Mark. Stay tuned. Hey, and welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan. I'm here with our comedian co host, Patrick Melton. Hi. Dr. Mark Kissel, a paleoanthropologist. Hello. And we're going to talk about how did hominins become human? And Mark has been doing this really great research looking at uh, the evolution of, of wisdom in uh, our species and our ancestors. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the um, the way that you're going about this. You're looking at genetics and also uh, just the genetics uh, that is now being shown that language is something that formed over time mm-hmm. and it might be part of our actual you know, human genome. Right. So it's a good question. I the language issue is something that everyone wants to know about. Right? So clearly, we, most humans have language. And most kids, I think, they kind of struggle to pick it up, but they pick it up fairly quickly. No non-human, other non-human primates don't do that kind of thing. So it's clear something that's distinctive about humans. We would love to know when it evolved. <laughs> we simply don't. I think it was like in 1870s, one of these linguistic societies in Paris passed a law that they couldn't even talk about the origins of language because it was so contentious. People argue about it. We know a little bit more now, but still we don't know because thought language doesn't preserve. So there's some tricks we use. There's these things called these Acheulean hand axes that Homo erectus made about 1.8 million years ago. These are teardrop-shaped stone tools that are flaked on both sides. Kind of look fairly impressive. I cannot make them. <laughs> I would totally die out in the middle. No, I have to get mine on Etsy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bet you Amazon you can get some Prime of, that shit. I bet you Etsy would have a bunch of them. Yeah, of course. Probably one crocheted. Oh I'm my sure. gosh, that would be great. Choose your color. A hand mitt, you know, for the oven, the oven mitt. Yeah. And if not, someone should really. I'd buy that. But go on. So you were saying, that <laughs> okay, so, yeah, you could make them. I got distracted. Oh. Right, so the, it's been argued that making these hand axes. You'd have to have lessons. Someone would have to instruct you how to make them. You can't just make them if you just find it on the ground. You have to have a set of lessons. So maybe that would involve language. But also maybe you can just watch somebody. But also somebody had to make the first one. If one person can figure it out, other people can figure it yeah, out. Yeah, fair enough. Like, I right. mean, that is actually a really good point. One didn't fall from the sky. This isn't Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs> they, the used to think they, were, they used to think they were formed by lightning bolts hitting the ground. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's how the first one showed up. You have to farm for them. But that's a, it goes back to the, the social nature of it. Someone maybe invented it. 
but how is she able to Of course, it would be shared. I mean, at some point, somebody's going to go like, where did you get that? And they're going to go like, wait till you figure it out, man. It's going to be great. Like, no, they're going to go like, oh, you just do this. Right, right, right. But you can also argue that chimpanzees, and even if you look at capuchins, Mm -hmm. will use tools, uh, rudimentary they may be, but uh, to break open nuts or to fish for termites. So it's an interesting, you know, and they have to pass on, and is that culture? They have to pass on that knowledge from one generation to the next. You know, like, don't eat that, eat this, mm-hmm. and this is the way you do that. You know, you want to use a long stick because these are the really aggressive ants or, you know, so on and so forth. But I don't know if that is... They teach cats to flush toilets. <laughs> uh, yeah, my mom's cat used to do that. <laughs> I mean, those have those crows that can get their, I mean, Newcastleian crows make use tools to get things out of test tubes, right? They put in labs. So they're very smart. Yeah. yeah I so think that, to, I mean, this is what Jane Goodall showed, right? Yeah. Jane, tool use doesn't make us human. But, you know, what makes us human is a lot more complicated than just one thing we all do. Because there's not going to be that one thing ever. So is it, I mean, ideally, is it, would you say it's a culmination of traits, like a language looking at, you know, mm-hmm. the ability to actually speak rather than just have vocalizations and, and facial expressions like our closest genetic relatives, chimps, right. do, uh, looking at the actual, you know, artifacts if, uh, if there was some symbolic art. And then on top of that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, fossil, any sort of remains that show there was, you know, uh, for instance, uh, burials and things like that. Grave goods. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all part of it. You know, the obvious, well, not, not, the not so obvious problem with this is that whenever you try to define what makes us human, we tend to do it very exclusively. Oh, we're bipedal, right? Or oh, we, we walk on two legs, or we have big brains. We have an Instagram account. We have Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we have Instagram accounts. But it's funny because I ask students to say this all the time, and they will say things like, "Oh, well, we go to space." You know, we, we wear pants. You wear pants. <laughs> Some, Some of us, us don't. do, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I think the problem there is we think of it very exclusively, and we actually, a lot of humans don't walk on two legs. There's humans who probably don't, who don't have language, who can't really think or complex pants. thoughts or have or, pants. No, I saw a few down the street earlier today. <laughs> Unfortunate sight. <laughs> Naked cowboy. Naked I mean, <laughs> I cannot draw for the life of me or make a stone tool. So I think that to defo- we have to rejigger, and I think part of the work we've been doing is looking at this, is what makes us human is our shared evolutionary history. That's the one thing we all have that no other species on the planet has. So the reason why, as a paleoanthropologist, studying this is interesting to me is we can look at that evolutionary history and see what makes us human is that story of that 10 million years or so of human evolutionary history that sets us apart from everything else. It makes us maybe distinctive. That's interesting. And, and I wonder... I mean, the team that's looking at this, are they from uh, various, not just fields, but also backgrounds? Because I think Mm -hmm. that would also be unifying in its own way. It's like what makes us human from different backgrounds, different cultures, a diverse group of people looking at what makes us human probably even unites them even more. Right. Yeah. So this team that I'm part of at Notre Dame, we are from, I mean, I come from a way different background than most of my colleagues do. I don't come from like a PhD family. So that might affect how I look at the question. One of my colleagues is from Britain and he has a different opinion on things, you know, and they're the theologians who are coming at it from a way different angle than I ever would. But we all had these same questions. We want to know what makes us different, what makes us unique. Their answer might be different. Their eventual answer might be different than mine, but they also really, really want to know what we know about the past. You know, it's all the theologians I work with believe in evolution. They want to know what do we know because they want to better understand you know, where we come from. 
Wow. So you have a shared research question, but just different answers coming different from data. Yeah, yeah different. exactly. That you're so I mean, we, we, we argue sometimes, but it's been really fun. And it's, it's unique, I think. In academia, we tend to compartmentalize. So it's been really fun to work with these people. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So we're going to actually take some cosmic queries because a lot of people do want to know what makes us human. So yeah. Patrick, what you got for us? Well, this is from Michael Myers, which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, terrifying, whatever you will. Are there any ideas on what caused humans ancestors to lose most of their hair? Was it climate, a response to parasites and doubtless many other possibilities I'm not thinking of? That's a that's a fun and question. Why are yeah. some people still so hairy? Right. There's a lot. There's a lot of jokes you can make. Uh, there are. <laughs> I leave that to Natalia and Patrick. Uh. Um, so there are a lot of theories out there. Uh, probably the best one has to do with the fact that when you get tall, Neanderthal. Neanderthal, right? Neanderthal. So we don't know when people got tall. Uh, ne- ne- Homo erectus, about 1.8 million years ago, we're fairly, we're probably at our our height. You can walk farther, but also you have the problem of how do you get rid of all the heat you're building up so you can learn to sweat. You know, humans sweat. We sweat because the little water droplets evaporate on our skin and cool us down. That doesn't work if you have fur. So some people have linked this all together. As to when it happened, it's really tricky to tell. I can gross people out by saying that the best study I ever know about this looks at lice. Mm -hmm. And there are human lice and pubic lice in humans. And if you look at the genetic divergence of those lineages, I'm forgetting it. I think it's about a million years ago that they split. So suggesting that they couldn't walk around the whole body, they only had two places they could be, tells us something about (laughs) when this happened. I will also cut down remarkably. Yeah, Yeah, right, exactly. Oh, come on, kids. (laughs) Let's load up the minivan. I will note that I once had a student ask me about the study, and I had to Google it, and I was actually at my colleague's house, and I was really hoping she wouldn't check her search history. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it that, that is fascinating, the fact that, I mean, I, I always joke that I uh, don't hate, I can't thermoregulate, because that's my, I, you know, my thing is I, I, I overheat all the time, and I feel like, gosh, if I had fur, I would be just a mess, but I wouldn't even be able yeah, to really way, sweat it off. Especially at night, like, I'm a batter, like, I just turn into a, just a heat-generating furnace at night, and I love it, and I love, like, it to be freezing and to have a blanket <laughs> on, so it's even worse. I wake up, and I'm just like, why am I under a comforter in the middle of summer? And I'm just <laughs> sweating. Imagine if you had fur. That's why I go, that's why I go wax. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some people that, I mean, I, I'm Scottish, and I always joke that, um, yeah, I we we I might have this great big head of hair, but it, it, it came with a price, and I'm... Uh, I've bleached my arm hair for many years. Me too. Yeah, bleach your arm hair Thursdays is a thing for me in my household. It, uh, Lovely. Yeah, it's good times. Do you have I any just, more cosmic queries before I tell them anything else about my personal hygiene? Sure. I have plenty of them. Uh, <laughs> Bring them. Could another species evolve into an intelligent group of beings? Are humans too dominant a species for such a thing to ever come to fruition? Like if huh. some frog ever starts lipping off, will we just start killing all frogs? Right. I don't know why I picked frogs. I just yeah, what do you get against amphibians? One of the scariest things that started talking to me. And like also I feel like a frog with a weapon. It's on land. It's in the water. You don't know what a frog's doing. Shark. I just hang out at a Walmart. Sharks can't get there. Land shark. Frogs. Land shark. Land shark. There's no such thing. This is. That's an old reference. That's yeah. an, I know. Sorry. You're dating yourself. I know. Hey. Um, they summon will date. I think they probably could, right? I mean. I think the anthropological answer would be we don't know what intelligence is in other things, right? I mean, ants. You have frogs could be plotting right now? There could be. 
I mean, ants farm and they terrifying. have war right, in theory, and they people claim that ants have slaves. If you, depending on how you define these things, so I think other things are certainly intelligent, not intelligent in the way we are, though. I think the evolutionary answer would be they're not going to become us, but they might become as intelligent. And clearly, the fate of all species is extinction. So, eventually, in all likelihood, we'll be gone, or species will, and then something else will come back up. Maybe the frogs. Maybe it'll be frogs. I'm not I'm, sleep I'm, I'm voting for the toads, though. I'm rooting no, for those guys. Or the bees. Like the bees want us to think they're dying off, but they're really all hiding in the center <laughs> of the earth. That's what the center of the earth is made of, just hot bees. <laughs> and they come spilling out of volcanoes God, one day horrifying. on bee day. We'll call it bee, bee day. day. I like that bee sounds, day. There. Oof, A volcano just filled with bees. Beware. Oh, <laughs> man. It'll be beautiful. And the frogs will handle the ground. The bees will be the air. Oh. It's a frog bee nightmare. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that sounds worse than pestilence. Yeah, not, not my thing. A frog calypso now. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want more? It's I just terrifying to me to think that any other thing could, like, you, we, as humans, we just think we'll squash anything that challenges us, right? Mm. Or would we? Like, I don't know. If I started talking to a frog, you're going to kill the only talking frog? That's a lot of responsibility. No, I feel like that's yeah. not, not the way to go. I feel like you're, you know, you're really kind of letting down you have to all, see of, what its intentions all are. of humanity. <laughs> yeah. What if you just want the party? <laughs> uh, why could humans not have evolved at different places on Earth rather than one? Multi-regional. Hmm. evolve? I guess did the question I, is, did they? I would think they would. Question. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. they? I mean... At some sense, that question is getting to the deeper question of where where did we evolve from. In the past, paleoanthropologists did think that humans evolved in Africa 200,000 years ago, spread out, and anything, any other hominins, right, things that were like us but not really us, would have been taken over and, you know, outcompeted. For years, people like myself and more prominent individuals as well were saying that's not true, right, that we would have, when these things moved out of Africa, they would have interbred with each other. So I think now we're seeing, as you talked about with the Neanderthal genome, they did inter- interbreed. So it's no longer one place. It happened multiple evolution. Most of our genetics comes from Africa because that's where we have our most of our deepest roots and the most people live there. But is it, ha- is it happening on a different scale now? We live in a world where where you can fly anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just modern times is that going to change the way we evolve because now everybody's mixing together from all over the world and this is going to accelerate that kind of like one ethnic group right i mean well one thing is that we had i mean so the last ten thousand years evolution has accelerated and sped up because of population there's more of us so we can see like the gene for lactase right being able to drink milk anyone who could drink milk is a mutant right most humans can't drink milk but those who can has been solely increasing their frequency over the last 7,000 years. So yeah, I mean, evolution has been speeding up. And because of, you know, we airplanes and whatnot, it's just changing the genetic makeup. Evolution's still going to always happen because we're influencing the environment. But people in China would have never met people yeah, well, in, in Africa right. in the past. Just, Globalization is... made that journey, and that was your life, possible. by the way, that journey. Right. <laughs> like jumping continents. I mean, it, or, it probably happened in the past, but yeah, a very low rate. Now it's happening right. very frequently, and that is changing, you know, our... Exponentially, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's speeding everything up. So, I mean, the, the lesson is people always think evolution has stopped, and it hasn't because nope. technology actually increases evolution. Well, that brings... 
the next question up. What is your best guess as to what humans will look like <laughs> in 500,000 years from now? Ooh, will we be here? Yeah. It's going to be a giant split. Just there's going to be there's going to be mole people. It's Eloy's Eloy's and, and more Yeah, we're going to have the pale hunched over, hunched over the you thumb. know, their fingers right. super long thumbs for Yeah, just for giant thumb thumbs apping. And then you'll have people down in people, the in the yeah. core of the earth uh, feeding the bees. The bees, the frogs will be the overlords. <laughs> Callback. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks. I'm a pro. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, but, but how, do, how does it happen? Do we split? Does it ever go where we like split again into this? Well, I don't think we will because of what you brought up, Patrick, because we keep, gene flow keeps us together. So I really doubt mm, we're going to split. Into, well. I really doubt we'll split into different, two different species. The difference might be, I think, from the, I think fans of Star Trek would probably know this better than I do, is like transhumanism, right? The notion of like cyborgish humans, that kind AI. of stuff, which might yeah. drive evolution in ways we can't really predict. Cyborg bees. Cyborg, cyborg bees. Well, yeah, let's, we're gonna have to wrap up this part of the show, guys. So, uh, cyborg bees. Uh, we're gonna talk Dot a little com. bit more with uh, Mark <laughs> after the break. But thank you so much, and uh, stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Talk. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan, primatologist, comedian. I'm with my co-host, Dr. Patrick. <laughs> yes, do it every time. She calls me doctor. I love it. I'm also a lieutenant. So, I used to sell bees. But I call him I in the bedroom. And Dr. Mark Kissel, who's a, is a real doctor. But not Do- that kind of doctor. Not that kind of doctor. What he studies is real. Well, he studies paleoanthropology. He studies dead things. Dead thing, yeah. You know, which is... I, I think not the one that makes any money. No, well, yeah, yeah. sell a kidney or something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But we're talking about what made what made hominins human. What made our ancestors become us today? What got us to be smart and modern and all sorts of cool things? But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the actual fossil record. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you look at to see how, what, what can the what can bones tell us about being modern? Right. At one level, they can't tell us much, right? Because, I mean, we can get some behavior from bones, but the bones we find up until fairly recently, there are not that many of them. I mean, we have a lot of fossils, but at one time we have maybe just a, a femur, the leg bone, or just some teeth. So it's really hard to get at maybe the kind of behaviors that people like me want to know about. Sure. There's, some, there's, some way, there's some tricks we have to doing this. It, Tell me your tricks. Right, well. <laughs> what you're saying is it's hard to get a conviction without a body. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Say. I mean, try, so what, because we don't even know when we showed up, but we have a, when Homo sapiens, if that's, you know, our genus and species name, the earliest Homo sapiens, we had date to 105, maybe 195,000 years ago in East Africa. So we're young. Yeah, we're fairly recent. We're really young. But there's things before that that also look kind of human, Things that after like after that also don't look that human. So how we define what human is is really really tricky from a fossil perspective. You know, some I remember in like fifth grade we all have to memorize the kingdom phylum class order thing, right? The Linnaeus system. And when Linnaeus defined Homo humans, he said just know thyself. He couldn't define us. <laughs> you know, and everything else has like a feature. So it's really really tricky to say. There are some clues though. I mean, we do see compassion. You know. We see that kind of early on. We find individuals at 1.8 million years ago who have no teeth but lived a long time after losing their teeth. So we do begin to see evidence of this compassion. 
And that kind of thing that, for the most part, doesn't happen in the non-human primates. So that is kind of a clue to more of this community building we're talking about. So you can infer from the fossil record something that somebody that doesn't have teeth or somebody that, for instance, was injured, would, would be a grave injury, but they've healed. Mm-hmm. You can assume from those fossils that they were actually cared for, taken care of by their, right. what would be assume, loved ones. Yeah, we find people with their heads were smashed in, but then they survived. And someone or individuals who had debilitating disorders but still lived a long time suggesting that someone took care of them. So altruism, compassion. Ah, (laughs) You burnt my toast. Um. (laughs) Or maybe the other example is like childbirth, right? Giving birth to live young in humans is really painful, right? Because of bipedality. We walk on two legs. Our pelvis, the hip bone, changes based on chimps from humans to adapt to walking on two legs. But we also then have to give birth to live young. And it becomes a sort of arms race, which is more important being biomechanically able to walk or give birth. So in human in human females, the baby has to fit through that birth canal, right? And spin. And spin and, spin and, and, and turn. And twerk and so it's really, really painful because of that. So these are the scars of, evo- scars of evolution. And I could also say for those of you who are listening that if you're ever in a situation where your significant other or partner is in labor, in the birthing room, explaining this scenario does not help. <laughs> Yeah, why can't we? Just, you, get, you, get in, you get in big trouble. Why can't Mark we just has get, two fantastic kids, and I have a feeling his wife probably <laughs> can relate to that story. But the point being that we could, we sort of see evolutionarily when that begins, when childbirth became very painful. Maybe that involved humans helping each other get yeah. Birth. Well, and babies also, get born face down. Yeah, they, someone needs to help. Exactly, because like, chimpanzees. I, I, I've, I've, well, I've seen um, howler monkeys give birth, and and boy, it is just. I mean, I'm sure it's not fun, but it looks like a walk in the park. The way they just reach down and they pull up their offspring, mm-hmm. they go to town on the placenta, and they just. Get, I mean, like uh, that's <laughs> yeah, what, what the, they do. Most of the chimps turn down an epidural. They don't. Even <laughs> they don't. They don't even go don't there. Even they don't even need it. They're like, I, they, I got this. They walk away, and they can do it by themselves. Water Where birth. humans, they actually they need. Do water birth. <laughs> what do you water birth? Chimps do water birth. I <laughs> yeah, heard. dance it out. Oh God! In almost every culture, there's a doula or someone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and because you need assistance, too. and so that that's a great yeah, that's a great point that the, the fossil and and is there even is there any um, data I, at this moment that can we can determine just from pelvis size and shape when that turning must have happened, or that hmm. that, that that process of, of right. making childbirth more of a a painful and um, social process because you need help. Right. So my uh, colleague, Caroline Van Sickle, would be better at this than mm-hmm. I would. But yeah, I mean, we have some evidence. The pelvic, the hip bone is kind of fragile, so it tends to break. We don't have many of them. A lot of the early pelvies we, we have are men from males. So it's Is that the plural? Pelvis? Pelvis. Ooh, I don't know. I'm probably yeah. wrong. I'm, well, I like that, though. Okay. Use that and scrabble. Pelvis, yeah. yeah. Pelvis. Or the innominate bone is sometimes called. So we don't know. I mean... It's been suggested that at Homo erectus time, the pelvis was more human-shaped, that it would have had that, the baby would have needed to twist and turn. It's a bit of a debate now. We don't, it's a good question that we don't have a good answer to. I think that yeah. maybe with Homo naledian, we may have better sure. the new And Homo fossils. erectus had a huge, I mean, as far as cranial capacity. <laughs> much bigger than naledian. Had a huge yeah. what? Finish it. Had a huge what? <laughs> I'm not having capacity. kids until Gosh, we can darn all it, lay eggs. <laughs> When do we get eggs? <laughs> My iPhone gets updates all the time. When do humans? Uh, another thing I wanted to touch on was just uh, looking at, I mean, we talked about the decorations and things like that that mm-hmm. people use as symbolism, but um, 
Uh, I know that you were looking at specific shell pieces and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, is this something that you see across multiple sites and things like right. that? People using sort of grave goods and things of that sort to. Mm-hmm. So the story here is that for a long time, we thought that this modern human behavior stuff, this wisdom, was fairly recent, maybe fifty thousand years ago or later, because that's what we saw. In, you saw that cave art in Europe. And most archaeologists are European, and they thought we should find cave art. They didn't find cave art in South Africa or anywhere in Africa. That meant that they weren't human until the certain time period, which is obviously problematic in many regards, right? It's kind of a great yeah. colonialist attitude. Of course. What we're finding now in these sites like a Blombos Cave in South Africa and sites in North Africa and in the Near East, it's about 100,000 years ago, people were collecting these, these Nasarius shells. So Nasarius is a snail shell. I think aquarium lovers like them because they eat all the gunk in the bottom of the aquarium. Kind of like me. Yeah, kind of like you. Mm. Or a grad student. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> what it looks like people were doing is sometimes parasites would try to drill into the shell. Hu- early human, like early humans were collecting these shells, choosing ones that had nice placed openings. And we can find on those openings, the little holes, evidence of use where, where the string was held up. So they were wearing these. What's really caught sights, one of the problems is these things are very small, so it's not until recently people actually looked for them. But at the site in Blombos Cave in South Africa, where Christopher Henshelwood has been digging for over 10 years now, in different archaeological layers, the way those shells were strung looks different. So you can be changing in patterns and changing in sort of how I mean, what the, the fad was at the time. So that kind of... Vogue. It was in vogue. Yeah. And to that mind, it's a very human-like thing. My guess is we probably were doing that much earlier, but it's going to be really hard to find those things because the archaeological record is kind of sparse there. Yeah. And it's like yeah. a needle in a haystack, really. Right. I mean, looking for these particular tiny shells and with the holes and the, you know. Like the, the crappy remains of the, the Eagle Talon, that site was dug in 1920 or 1909, sometime like that. And only because someone went back, my friend Seki went back and she looked and happened to notice this because with new, uh, new eyes. Fresh, which is why, yeah. you know, science is always changing. The questions remain the same, right? But you have new people coming in with this new maybe take on stuff. Yeah, because sure. the eagle had been looking for it for thousands. She <laughs> <laughs> couldn't find it anywhere. Well, no, but it's interesting just, the, again, like the colonialism and the, just the idea of, of, of people, or and, and people thinking that Neanderthals were, were dumb and weren't uh, capable of symbolic thought and things of that sort, and maybe creating something like a necklace. And, Where do and, they fit on the spectrum, though? Were there smarter uh, oh, evolutions sure of... Humans before, well, know. being smart is is a cultural aspect yeah. where you live, right? What so is I'm, smart? I'm sure Neanderthals could live better than us in many respects, right? I mean, right. Well, the axe thing alone, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, I mean, wasn't the Neanderthals. What were you saying about who made the axes? The oh, Homo erectus. Homo erectus. Oh, okay. Yeah, they uh, they, they kicked they kicked butt. They they were around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I then, still think they are around. I have some some theories and thoughts. <laughs> Much like, the, I mean, I'm two, three um, percent Neanderthal, right? My genome, so yeah, represented yeah. exactly. Here we've got a, a living Neanderthal example. So uh, we want to take some cosmic queries real quick. 
Okay. Patrick, what you got for us? Uh, Jared wants to know, what are some evolutionary changes within modern Homo sapiens that contemporary Homo sapiens should know or might find interesting to know? For example, what are some differences between, say, ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians versus a person who might live in the same region of the world today? Hmm. That's a really good question, Jared. Complex. Yeah, Complex. A good one. I mean, that was fairly recently, right? 5,000 years ago. There's not going to be that many clear evolutionary changes. One thing we mentioned before is, is the ability to drink milk. It might be that very few people, even in that region of the world today, are drinking, lack, are drinking milk. That'd be my guess. I would think that mostly the same. And hair, like we talked about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the difference is going to be they're not what they know, right? So a lot of commentators now like to say, oh, people are dumber than they were in the past. We're probably smarter, right? Because we carry on so much knowledge outside of our own, outside of us. We have our phones, which we can reach and learn almost anything, right? So someone like me 50, 30 years ago had to memorize the cranial capacities of every hominin. Now I can just look it up. So I think that that change is driving evolutionary changes in ways that maybe we can't see. Another answer might be, I think we are weaning kids a lot quicker now, so stopping breastfeeding quicker. That is probably is causing evolutionary changes as well. Well, even like uh, your colleague Jim McKenna, who talks mm-hmm. about co-sleeping. You know, the idea that co-sleeping is is frowned upon. Sleeping with your infant when you, if, for those that do not have kids, it's basically sleeping with your with your baby. And uh, I wonder how that you know over time is. If that, right. I mean, I, so I'm not. I mean, Jim talks a lot about this, right? That co-sleeping is what most hominins, what most primates have done for thousands of years. Recently, it's been on the outs for various re- for various reasons. It's if a mother is breastfeeding constantly and not smoking, it's actually safer in his research to co-sleep. In modern day society, though, there's difficulties in this kind of yeah, thing. So I think that is controversy. the culture aspect really culture, and you know, we can't remove humans from the culture that we live in. That would be sort of anti-evolutionary. So we, our culture is driving us. So I think the answer to this question would be looking at how cultures change in those reasons and how that has driven evolutionary change. I'm sure they're eating different foods and that, that probably having more of a meta- cosmopolitan diet and that's going to affect them as well. If we're, if we're lucky enough to be alive in 10,000, 100,000 <laughs> years, I mean, is the end... This is all fun, I imagine, to people who are into it and scientists who are into this and stuff because it's such a mystery. Like, you go back and you have to kind of unfold and figure out this stuff. But going forward in the future... I mean, there's YouTube and Wikipedia, and like, I mean, this is done, right? right? We're done ever having to like explain ourselves to people in the future because, and it's not to say you can't go back and study another civilization from the past, but there's a rec- there's going to be these records and this digital. I mean, unless it gets right. destroyed and some. I mean, I guess when I found a floppy disk the other day, and I had no idea how to access it, so I guess there could be that we won't be able to use those things anymore. I would guess that the... It'll be easier. It'll be easier. Yeah. I guess the archaeologists of the future might want to ask questions that are not written down, right? This is the problem. Archaeologists who work with the early historic record, they're often asking questions that are... Most people are writing down stuff by the elites. Now, is, now is that a thing anymore? Like, is there going to be something in the future that's not written down? We're going to know about everyone's cat on YouTube. <laughs> oh my god! We're going to know about Mr. I mean, you will literally be able to go. Like, I want to know what this person find their <laughs> Facebook page and just go. Oh, here's right. their whole timeline. By the way, it's it's literally in a timeline. No, I, I yeah, we curate our life right. in a way that yeah. I mean it makes it easy. Well, we do. Right? I think I wonder if 
is that clearly in the Western world we do that. I'm not sure how common that is in other places. But yeah, it's a good, I don't know what they would do. I'm lucky I'm not them. Yeah. But it's definitely more fun to be a complete mystery, right? Where you go in and have to actually like get to know right. yeah, I mean, something, yeah. you know, actually learn yeah, from, yeah, from when scratch. You, when you have it written down, it's kind of boring, right? Well, we actually have to wrap it up. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank Dr. Mark you. Kissel talking about what made hominins human. What what makes us human? I, I don't know. Chocolate. 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 Pants. Uh, contact sports. Um, Instagram. Insta- oh, God. Instagram. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. It's been a Star Talk All-Stars edition. Your host, Natalia Reagan, with co-host... Dr. Patrick Melton. I'm just going to call him doctor Thank from now you. on because it just honor- feels right. Honorary degree. Thanks. And of course, Dr. Mark Kissel from Appalachian State University. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, keep, uh, keep staying curious and looking up. Hi, and welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan, and here experiencing a, a, an extension Yep. And joining me now is co-host Chuck Nice, my hilarious comedian friend. Yes. yes. I'm actually still Patrick Melton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> no one knows. Change. No one knows it. I don't know what it is, but something's a little different. Well, what it is is my credit rating went down. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about what makes us human. And we, we've been talking about that, but we're going to talk about uh, something a little bit different now. We're going to talk about cloning, cloning primates, because pe- with the whole cloning going on in the news, uh, there's been talk about human cloning. But let's talk about actual primate cloning. Uh, we have a biological anthropologist, Dr. Ryan Rom from Lehman College here to weigh in on the subject. And most recently, there's been some cloning done in China of macaques. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, indeed. Um, so published just this year, looking at crab-eating macaques, uh, why they're eating those crabs, who knows, um, right? why we need more of them, who knows. <laughs> um, but they've successfully cloned you know, two live, viable crab-eating macaques. Um, it's not efficient. You know, They had 40 embryos, 20 pregnancies, two live births. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Um, but... You know, it's a step, to- and only a step two. towards human cloning. I got to tell you something; those are uh, those are pretty much house casino odds, right? <laughs> I, yeah, no, I don't, I don't like those odds. Um, yeah, so so only two survived uh, right. of all this whole process. But so. mind you, that's much better, right? So Dolly was two seventy five to one. Oh wow! So here, we're, here, 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 here were like forty to two, and that so. was twenty. That was nineteen ninety seven. You know, it's called progress. I'm going to say. Yeah. I find it funny that uh, of of all things that Scotland cloned, they cloned the one thing that they have in access of cheap i don't i never understood that i never i never Maybe quite understand that dolly was she was special, special. Yeah. dolly was no i can we all just have a moment of silence for for dolly anyways <laughs> <laughs> moving on but cloning of primates it, it's controversial because obviously you know we're much more related getting, to them and close to home right yeah right it's a little, a little funky a little like, you know so. so wait let me ask you as a mm-hmm. primatologist uh natalia how close are macaques to uh, homo sapiens. Oh, I mean, our closest genetic relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos. We share about 98%, 98.7% of DNA. I don't know, is what, what is macaques? I don't know the exact percentage amount, it's but still pretty high, there's right? like, yeah, the di- we diverged f- far back right. beyond, you know, we, we, we the common ancestor we have with chimpanzees about six, seven million years ago. Right. Macaques, I, was it? 25, 25 yeah, like, yeah, because New World Monkey is about 20, yeah, so. 25, 30-ish. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Yeah. So not we're not super, super close, but at the same time, they are primates, and that is a little mm. – that's close to home. It's close to home. Hitting close to home. But w- Did we learn anything, um, Ryan, from when we clone a primate? Do we learn anything about cloning us, and is that the purpose of cloning the primate, to get closer to cloning us? I mean, I think the, well, some of the main purposes there are – you know, macaques are a big biomedical research animal. Ah. And that if you can introduce some genetic changes in a macaque that predisposes it to heart disease or diabetes or something, then you could perpetuate that. Right. Then you can that, cure it. That group. Or so, you, or you I'm going to clone you so you, that you get heart disease right away. No, it's. And then I'm going to yeah. cure you of your heart disease. Yeah. This sounds very cruel. We do do that all the time. I mean, that's like super common with mice, right? There are all these lines of mice that are, they're not cloned, but they're so like, they just inbreed them incredibly until they're genetically homogenous. Right. And then like make a change and they just, you know, all get cancer. We give them cancer. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that, you know, yes, there's a lot of things, you know, we've cured cancer in mice like a hundred times. But mice are really distant from humans, so you try and take the thing that you've cured cancer in mice, you take it to humans, it doesn't work. Right. I mean, there's even arguments in in, in terms of animal welfare and, and um, medical research that because even chimpanzees are, are, are distant enough where some of the same things don't affect us the same way. I mean, they get certain il- illnesses that we don't. I mean, there is zoonosis, which is the transmission of you know disease from one species to another, but sometimes it doesn't always work that way. And macaques are even further removed from humans. So it, it is. it seems like a lot of work uh, and, and a lot of pain and suffering that we're inflicting on uh, yeah. individuals that I, I personally don't feel comfortable I mean, with it. Putting that to the side, I mean, the motivation for the mecha- a lot of the macaque stuff is biomedical and yeah. because, okay, yes, they're distant, but nobody's particularly comfortable with doing this stuff to chimpanzees. Right. No, and I... Um, and I'm mice sorry. are super distant. Right. So, so macaques, macaques happen to be the happy medium. Yeah. I know. Yeah. No, sir. Kind of sucks to be a macaque right I mean, now. Yeah. Interesting thing about macaques is they're the uh, second most widely distributed primate in the world. So they're, and that's another thing. You would think like we don't need any more macaques. They're everywhere. But that's the thing is they they are like humans in the fact that they are they are generalists. They can kind of almost thrive in any environment. They're the ones that you see. Remember in the hot tubs? Right. We talked about the yes. Japanese snow yes, macaques. Exactly. You love those guys. I do. You've got the temple monkeys. You've got, you know, I mean, macaques. You've got the Barbary macaques on Gibraltar. So there's macaques all over the world. They can, and they're the kind of animal that will eat. At, they're like ah, humans, like right. little trash. They just compactors. eat anything. So they are similar to us in that in that regard. You know, they're not like a, a, a specialist where they only eat leaves or right. fruit or insects. Exactly. And as as far as like cloning in terms of human cloning, like. Different mammals have slightly different sort of reproductive, you know, their eggs develop at different rates and there's different sort of sort of slightly different processes there that affect the technical details of cloning. Okay. So, um, you know, the, the way that you would clone a mouse or a sheep is technically a little bit different than the way you would clone a primate. Okay. And probably the process for the macaque would be closer to if you were going to try and clone a human, mm-hmm. you'd probably actually be learning something from cloning the macaque speaking of which i want to i want to jump into a little something a little more controversial uh bringing back neanderthals because we actually do have shared dna well shared we have dna signatures within us yeah. from neanderthal if you exactly. yeah i mean there's many that have you know anywhere you know 
minuscule amounts, I think about 4%, you know, so, uh, and, and we have the ancient DNA, viable ancient DNA. That's why we've been able to sequence the genome of Neanderthals. But just there's, there is talk about wanting to bring them back, but there's a lot of ethical, of course, um, dilemmas with right. bringing Neanderthal back. Well, there uh, we have a problem with chimpanzees, <laughs> but you want to bring back a Neanderthal, yeah. which, by the way, we used to kind of. We used you to. Know, down with. I mean, there's get funky. There's scientific evidence that you know guys, Neanderthals. We you know. There you. That's what I'm saying. I feel like I should. You know, I need to to clone my husband. I need to like. This is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to make myself a Neanderthal and just you know, Oog and I are going to settle down. We're going to have some nice hybrids, and it's going to be fantastic. And you you can laugh all you want, but we're doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> no, but there are there are some real ethical dilemmas about just you know because again, is it is why are we doing it? Is it so we can have like a freak show? Are they where are they going to live? Are they going to be considered humans? Are they are we going to give them rights because well, first of all, are Neanderthals humans? That's a good question. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, you know, by the creature, you know, by the criteria. <laughs> yes, they are. You know, which is one of the yes. which is one of the major criteria that people use for you know delimiting a species. Yeah. Species, species, yeah, yeah. We're considered. So I mean, there's species. they're definitely on that sort of line where you argue about it. Okay, I got you. you know? I got yeah. you. I mean, and I mean, we've done Star Talk episodes about this, about just you know wh whether Neanderthals were these sort of brutish, oafish, kind of you know just sort of cavemen that had no uh, artistic value or didn't communicate or couldn't. Worst-looking versions of Robert Pattinson, right? <laughs> With man buns. I don't right. know if you've seen the uh, the the it's recreation cool of the all the man. <laughs> right? That's yeah. And they also, you know, they didn't have the mental eminence. They don't have a chin. This is unique to humans. So yeah. it'd be a bunch of, of, of chinless dudes and ladies, which I could get used to. Listen, I know a couple people without a chin, so. I do too. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's okay. What would we learn if we were able to bring back a Neanderthal? That's I mean, amazing. what would be the big takeaway? I mean, there's lots, of, there's lots of arguments about, say, Neanderthals. Do they have language? Right. You know, are they capable of language? Okay. Um, I'm not sure. Which, by the way, I, I'm not sure the the other sort of moral complexities of cloning Neanderthals would well, have. So, but if you could actually do it, you could kind of solve that problem. Well, yeah. if they were not capable of language, I could understand why the human man yeah. wanted to make out with a Neanderthal <laughs> woman. That's hey, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. She doesn't say much, but she's pretty cute. Yeah, listen, she's chin, but whatevs. These are jokes, Natalia. That I don't really mean it. I know. And my wife, if you're although, <laughs> although there is suggestions that it went the other way. Yeah. What? Yeah. Really? Because if it was human males and Neanderthal females. There seems like there should be a reasonable chance of Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA. That's right. Humans, because there's that part of your genome or part of your DNA that comes from the maternal that's line. That's right. That's a mitochondrial. Yeah. We don't have any. We don't have that. This is why I want to clone my husband. Oh, gotcha. Uh, so it's <laughs> possibly, I mean, doesn't necessarily have to be exclusively that, but you know, kind of suggests that at least it was even, if not biased the other way. Right. Okay. Well, and, the, and the interesting thing is, like, obviously, not, the behavior is going to be different because, uh, you know, they're going to be living in the 21st century, you know. I mean, they could be playing on their iPhone and, mm -hmm. and adapting to our way of being. We, we Because, you know, soft tissue doesn't preserve, we don't know exactly how uh, 
advanced they were, sophisticated they are, they were. We might find out they, you know, they might be the next Mozart or Francis Ford Coppola or, you know, just doing their thing. I don't, I mean, who knows? So I don't, I'm not advocating for it, but it would be interesting. All right. How about this then, uh, Ryan? Is there enough, since we do have uh, DNA signatures within us that are Neanderthal, is there enough DNA within us to selectively breed out so that we can just have a Neanderthal? Um, yes. I mean, like, so populations outside Africa have about 2%, but it's actually not distributed randomly across the genome, right? There are parts of your genome where there's just no Neanderthal in anybody. Oh. Because, you know, for whatever reason, it seems like the gene variants or whatnot that Neanderthals had there just don't work very well gotcha. in human populations. And there are parts of the genome where basically the variants that everybody has are, or many people have are the Neanderthal variant. Ah. So if you go across the genome, it's okay, none, none, a little bit, a little bit, none, <laughs> a bunch, a little bit, a little bit, none. Gotcha. And so it's not just evenly It's not across. evenly across. So within modern humans, there's parts of the Neanderthal that we have, and the, but there's big chunks that just don't exist in modern humans. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Ryan Rom, talking about cloning and Neanderthals and extinct things bring them back <laughs> thank you so much this has been star talk all stars extension with chuck nice yes better known as patrick melton <laughs> well with a lower credit store <laughs> you said it not i did thank you and uh, stay curious and keep looking up and don't clone yourself <laughs>